I see some tears being wiped away. Pass the tissue. Hey, happy Mother's Day, moms. Can I just tell you, you demonstrate to us the love of God. And we are so immensely grateful for all of you. I wanted to say happy Mother's Day, too. In fact, Jeff gave me the best Mother's Day present this morning. He woke me up at the crack of dawn and said, let's go without our kids and you can go and do my job for me. That's not true. (laughs) We're doing the job together. I invited Jen (laughs) because as a mom, I thought a mom's perspective would be helpful and I'm grateful that you're doing this with me. Speaking of doing it with me, do you know that next month is our 25th wedding anniversary? We've been married for a quarter of a century, and it's a real joy. Thank you. And, and uh, it, is, it is our prayer that moms are blessed yeah. by this service. Speaking of the 25th, and that video confirms it too, but it's crazy how the years fly by, right? Yeah. I, I, mean, I can't believe it's 25 years. I can't believe I can stand in front of you today saying my oldest daughter, we sent her off to college this year. She's finished her first year in college. My second daughter, Janae, actually is entering high school. I don't even, I'm way too young for that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and my, my baby, our baby of the family is going into junior high this year. Yeah. So... The years are a blur. And I know you can all relate to that. You remember when they're little. And if they are still little, you know, hold on to them tight. Because before you know it, it's moving on. And the journey is a challenging one. Very hard. And uh, my wife actually came up with this message, this passage, this theme as a hope of, of encouraging moms. Yeah, it was really my heart in coming up here was just... I have a friend who always says, moms, more than anything else, need encouragement. And so I hope that you walk out just encouraged by what um, God's perspective can do as we do this mom thing. I have a second motive, though, because I feel like you guys always get to hear my life stories (laughs) from just perspective. And I just thought I owed it to you to come up here and tell some of his life stories from my perspective. So I have a good one. I have a good one. It happened about 20 years ago. Some of the backstory is Jeff and I have terrible eyes. Both of us have needed glasses since high school. And so um, a while back, way back, um, Jeff heard about this procedure called RK. It's called radiokeratonomy. Have you guys heard of this? Some of you have. That means that you're archaic and old because if you've heard of it, it's not done anymore at all. No, I'm kidding. You're not. But um, anyway, so Jeff heard about RK and he heard about this opportunity that we could get this done as a deal, a bargain deal, two for the price of one. He was so excited about it. He's like, I hear this stuff really works. And what they do is they take this diamond blade and they cut radial cuts through your eye. And that supposedly causes you to see better. So he's like, Jen, I got so excited. I signed you up for it. (laughs) And don't worry, I'll go next. I'm like, wait, wait, I'm going first? He's like, yeah. I was like, what husband does that? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> like, signs me up to get my eyeballs cut so he can figure out if it works for him. <sighs> so if he told that story, you just wouldn't get it like that. Yeah, I had no. a scheduling conflict, <laughs> all right? I would have taken the first slot. It just didn't work out that way. Yeah. Well, 
because I went first, that he empowered me to go yeah, first. Yeah, that's right. Lead the way, hon. Um, <laughs> the second part of the story is his, his turn was next. So I got it done, and it actually does work, which is crazy. And then he got it done, and he, um, I got the joy of seeing it because I, of course, went first. So I was in the waiting room, and they showed his procedure via video on this big screen in the waiting room. And it's not just like a faraway picture. It's like a really close-up picture of his eye. So I was sitting there, and I saw on the screen just this beautiful, round, big, blue eye of my husband. I was like, oh. I'm sitting here watching it. And then I watched this diamond blade coming towards it like a a knife coming (laughs) towards his eye. And something came over me, and I got so scared for him that I couldn't help but go, don't, don't cut it, don't do it. She freaked out. I and, totally and it was, freaked out. It was a problem because I'm in the room next door. <laughs> and I had been offered, I think it was Valium or some drug to calm me down. The doctor said, I really need you to be calm and hold your eyes still as I cut. And I refused any medication. I go, I'm a man. I don't need any drugs to calm <laughs> me down. And I was doing fine laying there until I hear, no, and I'm like, what? what? You know, oh, it was not good. And this could have been avoided if you yeah, went first. Right. So uh, here's, here's the amazing thing, and that is that it works. You come out of this procedure, and Jen and I were suddenly able to see what we couldn't see before. And that's our prayer for all of us as we do this little study in God's Word, that God would like miraculously do a surgery, if you will, in our spiritual eyes, enabling us to see reality that we couldn't see before. The Bible talks about faith being this capacity to be confident in invisible things like God and His nearness and His love and His activity. And we're really going to seek to grow in our capacity, with God's help, to see important things. It's kind of fun. The texts, uh, actually two texts, that we're going to, I've never done this before, but we're going to look at two different Bible stories that are linked according to the city they occurred in. One of them in the life of Joseph, the other in the life of Elisha. They're separated by a thousand years, but they both happened in Dothan. Dothan is this town in the Bible that's only mentioned twice in all of Scripture, and yet it was these two wonderful occurrences that occurred in this town, and they both carried the theme of more than meets the eye. Do you have the capacity to see what's really going on? And it's so fun. I got to meet the archaeologist of Dothan. No kidding. This week. It's true. (laughs) And, you know... I appreciate this about Jeff. He loves biblical archaeology, which all of you know, but because I get to live with him, I know how much he loves it. And I'm just Pretty thinking, cool, don't you think? I think it's kind of cute. Yeah, thanks. It is actually kind of cute in a geeky kind of way. <laughs> but um, it was so funny this week because he, 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 he takes Mondays off and he came home this past Monday and he looks at me and he's like, you would never believe what happened to me today. I got to meet an archaeologist that actually writes stuff in my biblical archaeology magazine, which is very, very, I knew this was a huge deal to him. Yeah. So let me tell you what happened. So <laughs> it's a big deal. <laughs> I knew what we were preaching on Dothan, so I thought I would swing by 
Wheaton College, um, our alma mater, has the pots and pans of this city. Really, it was Wheaton that conducted the archaeological excavation of Dothan, and the weaponry and the implements that they uncovered were all brought to the museum over at Wheaton College. And so I'm standing there admiring all of these pieces when this guy pulls up next to me, and he's like, can I help you? And I'm like, oh, I'm just excited about Dothan. And he said, well, I happen to be, his name is Daniel Master, he is a professor by the day, if you will, most of the year, but then on the summers, he goes on these incredible adventures, leading the excavations, going back in history, discovering the stuff of ancient civilizations. And he said, I'm the one that published the, uh, the excavation results of the work done at Dothan. In fact, he goes, come in my office. And he gave me, he goes, here is my personal copy of the results. And he gave it to me, I can't keep it, but he let me have it. You know, you would not have had that privilege. He and I are besties now. And <laughs> And uh, would you like to to touch it? Yeah, and he slept with it. I did not sleep with that. Every single day this week, he slept with it. That's not true. I got to tell some stories, right? Let Let me tell you, though, about this excavation. First of all, Dothan is north of Jerusalem. Here's the map. By about 50 miles. Here's the Dead Sea and Sea of Galilee. So it's kind of near the Galilee area. Here's a picture of the excavations of the ancient city of Dothan. What's, what's so much fun with archaeology is when the details they dig up correspond with the details of the biblical passage, just reminding us how historical the Word of God really is. And that's the case here. Sure enough, the town was a robust city at the time of Joseph, and a thousand years later, at the time of Elisha, robust city, just as the Bible describes. You'll notice the valley that's here. This is a long, narrow valley valley that extends southwest pointing towards Egypt. And they realized and discovered that this was a major thoroughfare for people going to trade goods in Egypt. And sure enough, that's going to come out in our story of Joseph, that people going to trade in Egypt came by this way. In fact, let me show you. That's our first passage we're going to look at is the story of Joseph found in Genesis 37. Yes, and I'm going to read it for us. Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dotham. Sorry. It's all right. (laughs) But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. What is up with this family? Here, this brother's coming to meet his brothers on the plains of Dothan. You'd think they'd be all excited, and they're planning to kill him. Friends, you may know the story of Joseph, but his brothers were suffering with intense jealousy. He was like the favored son of the family. Dad gave him the fancy colored coat. Joseph had dreams about someday his brothers bowing down to him and told his brothers, which didn't go over well. And his brothers despised him. And in this moment, when they're out on this field, sure enough, uh, there is plans to murder their own brother. Which actually, in a weird mom kind of way, I find encouraging. Because, for this reason, I have kids that fight. I mean, I, I was surprised at how much they fight. And just so I'm not alone here, I just would like you to raise your hand if you have kids that fight. <laughs> it's crazy, right? We should love each other. But, no, I have kids that fight. In fact, and Jeff and I call it in our house, we call it provoking. And I have one child in particular who is gifted 
and talented, yeah. mm-hmm, spiritually gifted, at provoking her little brother. Mm-hmm. It's quite amazing. And it starts real slow and just kind of escalates up until our household feels like this, like, warfare going mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, it brings me to my end of myself, and it definitely brings my son to the end of himself. But I have to say, the verse encourages me because he is not yet murdered. <laughs> it hasn't come this far. Yeah. Been close, but he has not yet murdered his sisters. So. You know, on, on, on a serious note. So be encouraged. <laughs> do you notice the dysfunction in biblical families? It's amazing how transparent God is about the problems. God just lays it out there and says, yeah, these families that I loved and worked with back then, they were messed up. And if you've got some dysfunction, if you, of course you do. All families have a measure of dysfunction in them. And if you've ever wondered, why is our family so messed up? How come it can't be perfect for us? You are in good company. You, you relate to those found in scripture. Families God loved. Families God worked in. So serious problems are normal. And God still works in those situations. So, let's continue. Verse 28. Yes. When Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. So the plan changed. Originally, they had thrown him in the cistern thinking that he would die there. But when these traders came by, headed to Egypt, the brothers thought, we can get rid of Joseph and make some money at the same time. So they pulled him out of the cistern, by the way. Archaeologists found cisterns in Dothan dating back to the time of Joseph. They uh, pull Joseph out, they sell him into slavery, and off he goes, never to be seen again, so they thought. They took his shiny colored coat, smeared animal blood on it, came to their parents and said, Brother Joseph was killed by wild animals. This is one hurting family. And, and, and sometimes when I read scripture, I try to picture the, the situation and try to put myself in those shoes of the family. So we're going to just do that together. But um, when you think about, first of all, Joseph being sold into slavery, he must have felt the biggest sense of betrayal. Because here his brothers who are supposed to love him, care for him decide to discard him, and not only discard him, but he's now sold as a slave. So he's not even treated as a human anymore. So when I sit in that, I think of how alone Joseph must have felt. And then I think about the, the parents in the situation where the brothers came in with the bloodied coat and they showed it to the parents and how, um, yeah, we've dealt with death, death this year, so I understand a teeny bit about this, but like how it must have felt to actually lose a child so suddenly, so abruptly, and so finally um, in their life. They just probably were consumed with grief for years and years, shock and grief. And then the brothers in this situation, it's a really kind of different angle in that the brothers presenting the coat knew they were lying. So I can't imagine, like, they are feeling such guilt in telling this lie, but also watching their parents go through all that suffering for so long, and yet they were hiding that lie, how that felt. So, like, if you sit in that family situation for a while, you know how bad it must have 
Ben. You know, we know, at least some of us, how the story ends, and we want to go there right away, but don't do that. Sit in the pain of this moment. It would have been so tempting to conclude that God has just abandoned them. I mean, the whole family has fallen apart. Everybody is in agony. Clearly, there is no God, or God doesn't love them, or God isn't present. That's the natural conclusion we come to sometimes when we see a moment in its raw pain. But that's the wrong conclusion, as we're about to see. God is present. Though it's a disaster, God is working in that disaster to bring about something beautiful. Let me show you what happens. Here's an overview of Joseph's amazing life, all right? He starts with this position of being the favored child. And he goes from favorite, as we just saw, sold into slavery. Uh, After he's sold into slavery, he's sold to a guy named Potiphar, higher up in the government of Egypt, buys him. And Potiphar is so impressed with Joseph's leadership ability that he makes Joseph the master of his estate, his house, which looks great until Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of making advances on her. He's falsely accused. Everybody believes her, and so he's thrown in jail. In jail, his leadership ability is recognized, and he is raised to be the master of the prison. Still a prisoner, but running the place. He gets some friends in high places, and he assumes that when they're released from prison, they'll go to Pharaoh and use their uh, connections to get Joseph out. But they don't. They forget about him, and he rots in prison for more years. Finally, Pharaoh has a dream, and these friends say, the guy who can interpret your dream, Pharaoh, is Joseph, and he's in prison. Pharaoh gets Joseph out of prison. Joseph interprets the dream successfully, and Pharaoh's so impressed that he makes Joseph the prime minister, second in command of all of Egypt, the mightiest empire in the world at the time. And not only does he have the authority, Joseph uses the authority to save the day. You see, Pharaoh's dream revealed that there was going to be seven years of plenty where the crops would be abundant, and Joseph led an effort to store grain at a level that had never been seen before in world history. He knew to do this because the next seven years were to be years of famine, and they were. The famine so severe, everybody would have died. Everybody in Egypt would have died, except for the effort Joseph had done. And there was grain stored enough to survive those years. It was during those years that Joseph's family came to Egypt looking for food, appeared before him not knowing that the prime minister is their long-lost brother. And then Joseph, in a dramatic moment, reveals his true identity. And he says, guys, it's me, Joseph. And then Joseph says something to them in that moment that is, is beautiful. Yeah, my favorite part of the story where it says in Genesis, Genesis 50, 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So why I love that is that God intended all of those downs that you could have focused on in Joseph's life, he intended them for good. He was wanting to take something that was you know, other people, he was, Joseph was a victim of a lot of other people's mess-ups, right? But he wanted to take that and make it into something good. And why that encourages me, because 
Because sometimes I have the temptation as a mom to look at the down parts of my kid's life and just keep, take a snapshot of it and freeze it and look at it and fixate on it and think, oh my goodness, there's not a lot of hope here. But if God could give me eyes to see that even when they mess up and even when they are being hurt by other people or even if they have an a sickness, or even if they've had an accident or something tragic happened to them, even in that, God can redeem that. And I need to look at that situation not as a snapshot of discouragement, but as a snapshot of like, I have a God who uses everything. Nothing ever goes to waste in our lives, ever. Mm. He redeems it. And so I have been encouraged by that, just that as a mom, to pray that for myself. God, please give me eyes that can see, even when my kid's having this hard time, um, that you're going to turn it into something good and to have faith of that. When we make a mess, God loves to redeem. Jen uses that term redemption. In fact, let's put it here. God is redeeming. Do you have eyes to see that God is redeeming? Let me clarify what redeeming is. To redeem means to pay the price necessary to fix a problem. God loves paying, investing, and fixing. In fact, you look at the cross of Christ. It's Jesus paying the ultimate price in order to right a wrong. Our God has a passion to accomplish redemption. So when you see a disaster, and maybe your family is making the disaster, it's so easy to lose hope and to say, oh, everything's messed up. Rather, we need to have eyes to see that God is looking at that disaster saying, how can I work in and through all of these bad decisions to bring it about to a glorious end, to bring beauty out of ashes? God loves redeeming. And that's what he did. I mean, in this Genesis 50, 20 verse, Joseph says, yeah, you were messing things up, but God was working in all of that mess up to bring about something glorious. God is redeeming. And we have a lot of redemption stories in our family, but the one I felt really that I wanted to tell is not actually about our family, but something, um, a story that happened that we got a journey with someone Mm. And it's the story of Jake's birth mom. Jake is our youngest son, and he was adopted. And I am so grateful that we actually had the chance to walk through the adoption with his birth parents and his his birth grandparents. And so I want to tell a little bit of her story. Um, She grew up in an awesome home that pointed her in the path of Jesus. She, as a child, loved Jesus she probably went to Iwana's. I don't know that for sure. Yeah. But she, she loved Jesus. And she went to high school, still following Jesus, graduated from college, still following Jesus. Her parents were so grateful and thankful for the choices their daughter was making. But out of college, um, she actually even stepped into a worship leading position at her church. Um, but out of college, years had passed where she started to become a little bit disillusioned following God's way because she had a desire to get married and she was unmarried. And that disillusionment grew to some discouragement and some seeking out of maybe there are other paths I could follow. And she did. She started on a path of 
um, doing drugs and hanging out with a crowd that was really a terrible influence. And her parents, watching their daughter make this sharp left turn, they were really, really heartbroken, as we all would be, right? And unfortunately, in, in her case, um, their daughter's case, it ended up where she got pregnant. And in a pregnancy she did not want to have. Uh, you can imagine how easy it would have been for her parents to give up hope. I mean, they're watching their daughter systematically dismantle her life and make poor decision after poor decision, getting worse and worse, and now she's pregnant. Uh, it could have been a hopeless situation, but they inspire us so much because they knew Jesus redeems, and they refused to give up hope, and they remained prayerful that God would do a miracle, and God did a miracle. Uh, this pregnancy turned out to be rock bottom, kind of the wake-up call to this young lady, and she started looking back to Christ, saying, Jesus, what would you have me do? In fact, the Lord led her to give up her child to us for adoption, which is just a glorious blessing in our lives. She continued to walk with Jesus. She went back to church, back to her parents. Uh, God eventually blessed her with a great Christian husband, and they are flourishing today. It's just a picture of how God can redeem a disastrous situation. But what I think I'm so grateful for in um, Jake's birth grandparents is just the fact that they never ever let go of having eyes to see the situation um, in a redeeming kind of way. They never ever were, were down, down discouraged to the point of giving up. And I saw in them such a faith that they, were, they could look at this situation that was so hopeless feeling and they could say, you know what, even this even this is going to be redeemed by God. And I am so grateful. We get to get together with them time to time. And they actually um, point out to us often um, how grateful they are for the fact that Jake is in our family and how God redeemed it all. And it's humbling to mm. me and inspiring to me. And I, I think it's always important to have moms who have gone before you, way before you. And his birth grandparents are those kind of parents for us. They've gone before us and they have taught us that you can definitely have eyes to see that God redeems everything. So I just wonder, when you look at a disaster, are you hopeless? Or do you have eyes to see that our God does redeeming really well? I wonder. So that's the first takeaway. Let's go to the second. Now we're leaving Joseph. We're going forward in time 1,000 years to the time of Elisha. Elisha was a prophet of God, and he was using his prophetic ability for a military advantage. The nation of Israel was fighting the nation of Aram. And Elisha was saying, hey, I have prophetic knowledge that Aram is going to do this or going to do that. And through anticipating Aram's moves, Israel was always winning. Well, uh, Aram found out about uh, Elisha and what he was doing. And so the king of Aram sent out a group with this mission, find Elisha, he's their secret weapon. Kill him. That's your sole objective. And we come now to 2 Kings 6, verse 14. The report came back, that is back to the king of Aram. Elisha is in Dothan. There's our town. Then he, the king, sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and they surrounded the city, this whole army around the city, ready to pounce on Elisha. I think what strikes me about that story is that 
the attack on Elisha is so personalized. It's just for him. It is not for the whole country. It is that army was sent just for him. And some days I think that we're not aware that we are in a similar battle. Um, and it's personalized just for us hmm. to bring us down. And it's personalized for our kids. that They're in a battle um, to bring them down. And the, the enemy that they have and the enemy we all have is Satan. And he has a plan to kill and destroy the hearts of our kids. And I think it's important as a mom to just have that on the radar at all times. Happy Mother's Day. Yeah, isn't that a blessing? Huh? <laughs> there you go. Satan wants to destroy your kids. Isn't that sweet? Well, that would be horrible if the story ended there. But there is more to the story. So let's keep on reading. Verse 15. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, no, my Lord, what shall we do, the servant asked. So the servant is freaking out. You know, he's sipping his coffee, and he looks, and he sees this enemy army surrounding the city there to destroy his master, Elisha. Well, he panics, but Elisha doesn't. It's so interesting how different their emotional reaction to the same circumstances. The reason he's panicking is that he doesn't see what Elisha sees. Let's continue. And 2 Kings 6.16. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered, because those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I can imagine the servant going, your math is lacking, Elisha. I see about 10 with us and, you know, 600 with them. This is a, what are you talking about, more with us? Here, Elisha was seeing the angel armies sent by God. And the servant couldn't see it. And so uh, Elisha, the prophet, was proclaiming spiritual realities that remained unseen. He was describing them. They're there. They're more than those who are against us. He's saying, my friend, don't be afraid. So the prophet's declaring what the man can't see. You know, that happens. The Bible is prophetic declaration of things we can't see. And if you want to know how can I grow to see God and his nearness and his activity and his love, the first step is listen to the prophetic proclamation. Those who read the Bible learn to know what's real yet unseen. Those who don't read the Bible, don't study it, don't listen to it being taught, they remain ignorant and blind to those spiritual realities. So that's the first. How do you gain this vision? The first thing, be a student of the Bible. The second thing, is prayer. We know that from the next verse. Verse 17, Elisha prays for his friend. He says, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And just then, the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Friends, God answered the prayer and gave him miraculous capacity to see the angels. Now, if we pray, is God going to enable us to see angels? Maybe, probably not. But there's this thing called faith, this spiritual vision, this capacity to know that God is real, that God is near, that God is loving us, that God is there for us. And he can give us that vision, the, the confidence that it's true. And so we should pray. 
We should be praying, God, open my eyes that I may see. I go through too many days oblivious to that which is real yet unseen. And when we get an answer to that prayer, here, we're going to realize God is fighting for us, just like he was for Elisha. Two points. Joseph's story, we learned that we can see God is redeeming broken messes. And the second point here in the story of Elisha is we'll have eyes to see that God's standing battle-ready at our side, going, yeah, it's a war, but I'm here to win the war with you and for you. And boy, do we need to see that, because you can't win this battle by your... Nope, I hope you're not offended, but you're too weak. I'm too weak to win this battle. We need God's help. I'd love to picture the angel armies around my kids because it reminds me they are being fought for by God. So true. And I had this, I told you earlier that our oldest daughter went to college and God really hammered this particular truth home to me when she went. Because there's this thing, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, um, when you send your kid off to college, it's kind of like the final exam of parenting. (laughs) You're like, I just hope they have everything that they need. And you realize they probably don't have everything that they need to go off and be on their own. It was hard for me to send Jorah off because I felt like she was going to go through some ups and downs and ups and downs, and I was not there on a daily basis to kind of talk her through it. And so come July of last year, Jeff and I went on this high alert zone for parenting where we thought everything she needs to know we are going to teach her this month. Cram course. Cram course. (laughs) We are going to preach at her. We are going to teach her the things that she needs to know. It was a very real feeling, wouldn't you say, for both of us? In fact, Jeff, I I remember him dragging her out to the driveway and saying, you need to learn how to put a tire on. She's like, why? But just in case, just in case. I, he hasn't even taught this to me. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm there for you. I think you did try to teach me that same day, but anyway, I didn't learn. Um, but we sent her off, and I felt like it was a big deal to send her off. I felt like she's going alone into this this college world. But that's where the eyes of faith needed to come in because mm. she did not go alone to college. Right. She went with angel armies. Because I had done a lot of fighting for her heart at our home, but I didn't know if it was really, she was, her heart was ready to be in school, but God made it so crystal clear to me that he was fighting for her. I would get these phone calls through the year that, um, not often enough, she did not call me (laughs) often enough, but when she did, she would, she would describe what God was doing in her life. Like, mom, you would never believe God did this and this, and I'm serving now in the junior high ministry, and I'm so excited about the, the course that he's taking me on, and I would be listening to her, and I was, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say how shocked I was at how well she was doing, and I would hang up the phone, and Jeff would be like, is everything okay with Jorah? And I'm like, you would not believe. The kid is growing. She's doing She's better doing without way us. way better without us than she was doing with us. Which, and it was like God was trying to encourage me like, you know what? I'm fighting for your kid. When you're not there, I'm fighting for her. And it's been really good for me to take that lesson to my other two that are still under my roof. Of course I want to fight for them. But know that no one fights as good as God does. And that he is surrounded by my other two with angels' armies. Yeah. 
You know, our, our surprise at how well she did without us demonstrated to us that we overestimated our role in the victory in her life. Now, I don't want to downplay parenting. It's very important. Our role is significant. But the one who ultimately wins the battle is the Lord. And that was so clear to us as we were no longer fighting for her. She's gone, and God was fighting for her, and she's thriving as a result. And so this realization is just bringing Jen and I back to this place of dependency on God as we look at our two that are still in the home. Again, realizing that, God, if you don't win their hearts, they're not going to be won. You're the one who fights for them. Brings a posture of humility and dependence on the Lord and hope in the battle. So and it let takes me just, some of the pressure off. It does take a lot of it off, actually. <laughs> let me just ask you, can you see... When you look at the brokenness of your life or the challenges you face, do you just look at them through earthly eyes or have you the God-given vision to see God right there, ready to redeem, ready to fight, holding your hand in the morning saying, are you ready to face this day? Let's go do it together. I'm here with you. I will guide you. I will support you. I will strengthen you and we'll win the day together. Friends, if you can see that spiritual reality, it's, it's game-changing. If you can't, you're missing out. So we'd like to pray that God would increasingly do that great work of doing that surgery, enabling you to see his reality. We want to pray for you the Elisha prayer, what he prayed for his servant. And so uh, we pray for the moms first, but we pray for everybody because we all need this. Are you ready? God, we do thank you for the moms. They've got a hard job. Moms with little kids, moms with older kids, grandmas with all these people precious to them. And I'll just say it, Lord, they can't do it on their own. They need you. Everyone needs you. And so, Lord, would you open their eyes that they may see Would you enable them even now to know that you're whispering in their ear, let's do it together. God, not only moms, do it for all of us. We want to live our remaining days not just connecting with the physical realm, but being amazingly aware that you're real, that you're here, you're near, you're loving us and you're leading us and you're active, redeeming and fighting. Please, God, make your reality abundantly apparent. Give us eyes to see, both now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.